Hello, and welcome to An English Prof Reads the Bible. My name is Megan. I teach English at a small Bible college, and in this podcast, I use what I know about reading literature to help you read the Bible. Right now, I'm working through a short series on the Psalms. In the first episode, we studied Psalm 1, and in this episode, I want to look at Psalm 15. I'm aiming for about 10 or so Psalms over the course of the summer, and I thought it would be fun to do Psalm 15 because it's a little bit lesser known, but I'm also doing it because I'm a teacher, and as a teacher, I know that review is good. And Psalm 15 is going to help us review some of the same structures as the first psalm, specifically parallel structure. It's also going to introduce us to a new structure, um, speaker and audience. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 15, and then we'll get into the analysis. Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So, the first thing to notice here is the question and answer structure of the psalm. Notice that it begins by asking a question of God, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? And then starting from verse 2 onwards, he who walks uprightly, moving through the rest of the psalm, it provides an answer. I realize that talking about the fact that There are questions in this psalm, and an answer to the questions seems a little bit obvious, but honestly, this is what a lot of literary analysis boils down to, is noticing stuff about the poem. And when you notice all this stuff about the poem, all the stuff you notice gives us important information about what the poem is getting across. In this case, here's the information that the question and answer format gets across. Um, It's important to notice that the question is addressed to God, and the address to God implies that the speaker wants to be close to God. The tabernacle and the holy hill that the speaker is is wanting to reside in, these are places of worship, they're places of safety. In the ancient times, you would climb up upon a hill to be able to look around you, to see any enemies coming. It was a good place of defense, and being in God's tabernacle and in his holy hill is a place where the speaker feels that he can be safe and he can be with God. They're prefaced with the possessive word, your too, which indicates that this place of worship and safety specifically belongs to God and is defined by him. And furthermore, the speaker wants to abide in God's tabernacle and dwell in the hill, which which indicates a long-term residence. And so what the speaker is asking here in framing this as a question is the speaker is approaching God to find out how he can enter this place of safety and communion with God. 
The fact that it starts off with a question also implies that the person talking in the second half of the poem is God. So when the poem says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness, that person can abide in God's tabernacle and dwell in the holy hill, the person making that pronouncement is God. God is answering the question. Let me take a little bit of a, a detour here as a literature teacher. On the face of it, we might just read this poem as, as David talking and writing stuff. But when you get into poems, there's actually a convention called the speaker. And the speaker and the writer, the person who writes the poem, is different than the person that is actually talking in the poem. You can think of this like Star Wars, right? You've got the character of Han Solo, and Han Solo is played by... Harrison Ford. They are not the same people. Um, so the writer in a poem is is kind of the Harrison Ford figure. He is producing or acting out a character. In this case, David is is writing a psalm in which a speaker, unnamed speaker, addresses God, and he's imagining God's reply. And so this he who walks uprightly, this is God talking. And the fact that God is answering indicates that he desires to, to commune with humankind. He's as interested in the psalmist coming in and abiding in his tabernacle and worshiping him and dwelling with him as the speaker himself is. Um, God wants this relationship between him and and humankind to exist. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother answering. All right, and so let's go ahead and move on to God's answer then. And what I want you to notice here is the repeated parallel structure. We talked about this in Psalm 1, right? Parallel structure simply means a repeated phrasing or a repeated structure in the poem. This is the linguistic equivalent of suburban houses. If you drive out into the suburbs, every single house looks very, very similar. They are all following a pattern, all right? The uh, latter half of the psalm, verses 2 through 5, similarly follow a pattern. You can see four different chunks to the second half of the, the psalm. He who walks uprightly, he who does not backbite with his tongue, he who swears to his own hurt, he who does not put out his money at usury. Right? Notice that these all begin with the words he, who, and then a verb, or a verb in the word not. Right? This divvies the psalm up into four different chunks, four different slices of a pie, so to speak, and we're going to deal with each chunk separately. Um, the, the parallelism indicates that each different chunk adds something new to God's answer here. So, chunk number one, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Notice that the words walks and works and speaks, these are all active verbs. The speaker is doing something. And this implies that righteousness is a matter of action. We don't become godly and good by default. Um, I'm also drawn to the word speaks because speaks indicates uh, commitment and ownership. When we talk about something that hopefully, indicates that we're being sincere about it. We are making a commitment to something. And the speaker speaks truth in his heart to himself internally. And so he's got a, an internal commitment to righteousness that's going on here. Right, so that's chunk number one, is 
the person who is able to draw near to God is somebody who is committed to living a godly life. Chunk number three, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. I'm drawn to the words backbiting and taking up a reproach. These are both things that we do with our speech. However, the fact that he does not do evil to his neighbor, that's an action. And so this part of the psalm lumps speaking and action together, which means that this person who, who dwells with God is somebody whose speech and action are, are the same. It also implies, incidentally, that speech and action are morally equivalent. It's not worse to do something than to say something. I, I notice, moreover, that the psalm focuses on the, the holy man's relationship with his neighbor and with his friend. These are people who have some kind of claim on the holy man. They are close to the holy man, and the holy man gives them his due. He acknowledges that claim. He treats them um, in a deserving fashion. In other words, this is a man of justice and fairness. He honors the people that he's close to. Backbiting, also, third observation, is, is very covert. It's not something we do out in the open. And so this is also a man who is honest. So to review, at this point we're getting a picture that the, that the man who dwells with God is righteous to the core, that he shows justice and fairness to the people who have a claim on him and who he cares about. He's honest. Then we have our third chunk of the pie, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This indicates um, a kind of moral seriousness and commitment. He's driven by something deeper than self-preservation. I'm reminded of a C.S. Lewis quotation in his essay, in C.S. Lewis's essay on living in an atomic age. He writes this, it is our business to live by our own law, not by hers, not by the law of nature, to follow, this is the important part, in private or in public life, the law of love and temperance, even when they seem to be suicidal, and not the law of competition and grab, even when they seem to be necessary to our survival. And this is what C.S. Lewis felt to be a, a crucial part of an upright person, is that he's got a commitment to righteousness above self-preservation. And we see that reflected here in Psalm 15. He has a commitment to sticking to his word and doing good regardless of whether or not it causes him hurt. And then our final chunk of the pie, uh, the fourth section, begins, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. I'm struck here by that phrase at usury. Because the fact that he doesn't put out his money at usury implies that perhaps this man who dwells with God does put his money out, just not as usury. Um, perhaps it's even a gift. Perhaps it's a loan, but he doesn't get a whole bunch of interest on it. Regardless, it indicates this man or this woman is somebody who is generous, somebody who is invested in the needs of the poor. And so when we put all of this together, we see a couple of things. We see that the speaker is pursuing God and God is answering back. He's pursuing humankind and God invites those to draw near to him who are like him, 
just, merciful, and generous. And at this point, we could say so much more about this. We could connect this to Matthew 25, where the people who love God and who follow God serve Him by serving others. We could also connect this um, to God's Son, Jesus, who is perfectly like God, who meets all of these standards laid out here in verses 2 through 5, and who draws us near to God. But this is meant to be a short little podcast. It's also meant to help you understand the words on the page right in front of us. And so I'm going to leave that there for you as food for thought. To end this podcast, I want to close out with two applications. One is spiritual, one is literary. Spiritual, I think it's worth ending the, our study of the psalm by asking ourselves this question. How is God calling you to live a life of justice and integrity, of generosity and mercy? Because what this psalm suggests is that this is one way to understand God or to commune with Him. And so, in what ways can you be just as our Creator is just, or generous as our Creator is generous? The literary application here is as you read the Psalms or other parts of the Bible, think about who is speaking. Think about what their purpose is speaking and look for those repeated phrases. That will help you understand the purpose of the text as well as how it's best to divide it up in order to understand its structure and put the whole thing together. All right, you have been listening to An English Prof Reads the Bible. This was episode two on Psalm 15. If you liked this podcast, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Please share us with your friends and check back next week for another episode of An English Prof Reads the Bible. Thank you.